0: Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at cars and transport from a variety of angles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories include Kia finally enters the electrified market with their new Nero car. In a major interview last week we lamented that all the talk of the federal budget was about the size of the spending and not about how effective the spending will be. This week we again hear from Michael Caltabiano, the CEO of the major transport research organisation, the AWRB, about how he is working to ensure we make smart decisions. And Brian Smith talks about a necessary, although uncomfortable, discussion point to do with transport in India. If you would like to find more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. All previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. After a long and determined effort, Kia has bought an alternative fuel vehicle to Australia. Their Nero is a small SUV and comes in three variants, a mild hybrid, a plug-in hybrid which can do 58 kilometres on battery alone, then switch to petrol power for long-range touring. Both hybrid models drive the front wheels with a 1.6 litre petrol engine and an electric motor using a six-speed dual-clutch transmission. The third option is an all-electric model with a maximum range of 455 kilometres. There are two equipment levels, the S or the Sport. Prices, excluding on-road costs, start at just under $40,000 for the mild hybrid. Add $6,600 for the plug-in hybrid, and the all-electric has a further additional cost of up to $16,000. Australia was slow in getting the Nero as there was limited supply and Kia headquarters gave priority to countries with CO2 regulations. The Audi Q5 is a medium-sized SUV and is Audi's second best-selling model, and is close in sales to the Mercedes-Benz GLB, the BMW X3, and the Volvo XC60. We drove the 40TDI, a 2-litre diesel with mild hybrid assistance. It's priced at $74,900 plus on-road costs, About right with the other luxury brands, but at least $30,000 more than a quite sophisticated Toyota RAV4 hybrid. The Q5 has plenty of features, but not rear cross-traffic alert and adaptive cruise control is an option. But there is a quality ambience when driving. A good test is a motorway in Sydney with many close-spaced, epoxy-filled cracks, which can sound and feel like driving along sleepers on a railway track. Noise and intrusion into the Audi cabin was minimal. Not practical value for money, but elegant to drive. For National Road Safety Week, Ford Australia conducted a survey of 1,000 people and found 45.5% admitted that they had driven over the speed limit and 14% admitted that there are some road rules that they do not follow. Canberra showed the highest level of rule breakers. But 67% agreed that if other drivers were courteous, they would feel better on the road. Nearly one quarter admitted to only being courteous if another driver is courteous first. The Road Safety Week website asked people to sign a pledge to drive as if the people around them were a loved one. While the sentiment for this survey and pledge is honourable, it's unlikely to make a significant long-term impact. We need a behaviour change program that addresses all the circumstances that make us lawbreakers and aggressive road users. Since Michael Caltabiano joined Australia's major transport research organisation, the ARRB, as their CEO, they have pursued a program of building digitised data sets. Across Australia, they now have safety data on the fatalities, serious and minor injuries, and data on the road network conditions. When you put the two data sets together, you have a powerful tool for analysis. And we can
1: look at where are the safety incidents happening? Do they align with really rough sections and narrow sections of road? And we can inform the state transport agencies, as they've now become, on prioritising repairs of the network. What's the highest priority for saving lives and delivering smoother, safer journeys? How do we connect communities? Where are the bottlenecks? How do we go about fixing those? So we are completely data driven now and we've got this massive data lake of transport information to inform that journey.
0: The Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University has celebrated its 30th anniversary. It has a worldwide reputation for thorough research and practical applications of forward-thinking ideas. The founder of the Institute is Professor David Henscher, who has nearly 62,000 citations to the wide range of his academic output. The Overdrive radio program and podcast has benefited from his commentary on many occasions. He has been described as someone who has "...the skill to bring the state of the art to the state of practice." He has an unprecedented success at creating projects, garnering support, encouraging others and communicating information to people and businesses in non-academic language. One person summed up the ITLS success by saying, it is not only what you are good at, but what you are good for. David's own reflection is, it's nice to be important, but more important to be nice. And that has been the news. We're in a time of huge and rapid technological development, which will offer great opportunities to adapt the way we do things. Add to that major uncertainties arising from situations such as COVID. So predicting the future, or more to the point, making the most of the future, needs expansive thought and engagement and research. The AWRB, formerly the Australian Road Research Board, has a vision statement to make the world's city smarter, cleaner, greener, safer, more efficient and productive through intelligent transport solutions. How do we do this in times of difficult funding and a media-driven emphasis on short-term opinion? It is appropriate, and it's a pleasure again, to speak to Michael Caltabiano, the CEO of ARRB, and after a few technical difficulties, I asked him about what the road authorities were seeking when they set up ARRB in 1960.
1: Sought a central body of excellence to write the standards for the future, which in 1960 were about our new freeways, our new way of mobility. And if we fast forward to 2021, ARRB has now transformed itself into the National Transport Research Organisation, where we have a genuine remit across road, rail, ports and airports. And this is how we, you talk about trying to get some insight into the future. The future is about integrated mobility. It's not about roads. It's not about trains or light rail. It's not about ports and airports. It's about the integration of those journeys for freight and for passengers to really give economic uplift, but also to connect our communities.
0: A move from supply side approach from individual silos of government road rail
1: etc to a more demand understanding absolutely i couldn't have put it better that is exactly the transformation that's happened in our community
0: that's an understanding of the diversity of trips too isn't it are we better now and i think you're doing work on data that makes us that helps us understand
1: the complexity more uh, well, we have. We've got um, probably the largest infrastructure data set in the country. So we have all of the safety data collected um, across the nation for fatalities, serious injuries and minor injuries in every state and territory across the nation. We can actually and have the data to plot every single journey of every single vehicle on every single street in Australia at five-minute increments. For the last five years so we can tell you on even a local suburban street how often people are using it at what speed are they driving when they get on the main road are they congested how does that affect their trip and we also have the nation's platform of data on the performance of the network performance of our road system so how strong are they how many potholes have they got are they rough are they rutted and we've got all of that across the state and Commonwealth networks in Australia. So we can actually now overlay these data sets and we can look at where are the safety incidents happening? Do they align with really rough sections and narrow sections of road? And we can inform our state transport agencies, as they've now become, on prioritising repairs of the network. What What's the highest priority for saving lives and delivering smoother, safer journeys. How do we connect communities? Where are the bottlenecks? How do we go about fixing those? So we are completely data-driven now, and we've got this massive data lake of transport transport information to inform that journey.
0: See, it's a, a case often that an accident is seen as a microsecond poor choice, yet it develops for reasons. An accident crash might be the better word. It develops for reasons and understanding the broader inputs into that decision rather than just assuming it's the nut behind the wheel is a critical shift in public thinking?
1: Yes. We we are we are in the systems space. So we are using data now to look at the individual incident and relate that incident to what the system was doing at the time. And from that we can then model well when that when that System setting appears again. How do we stop it just before it gets to a stage where we are causing incidents and accidents? And there's some really good work being done by DOT in Victoria on freeway measurement and monitoring on the Monash in particular in Victoria, where they now have been able to model and predict when incidents and accidents are going to happen and use the ramp monitoring and speed monitoring on the motorway system to move things around to avoid a chaotic environment that happens on motorways when things things occur.
0: The truck industry is also getting very sophisticated in the collection of data.
1: I'll give you an example. If you're a transport operator out of Toowoomba and you're bringing a perishable freight down the East Coast to Melbourne, for example, you want to know that you can employ your best driver who drives the smoothest way and goes on the on the road route that is most accessible for a truck of that size to go on a safe journey, minimum number of traffic lights, so that you're not having harsh events that will spoil the perishable product. We can get community
0: benefits as well. Is it important to make sure? that we work with industry to incorporate that. You can do research or, or or run a business to make money, to serve particular customers or serve the community. We really have to try and meld those together?
1: Yes, we do. And that is what the next big phase or big opportunity that exists in our sector is, is really high levels of engagement with the community because we need to understand the journeys and what's important to them. And we also need to take them on the journey. They don't have insight into the future of connected and automated vehicles. They don't have insight into, you know, the $2.2 billion that the federal government has just allocated across the country to state and territory governments to fundamentally change the rural and regional road network so that we have wide center lines, edge lines, sealed shoulders to really address the safety issues in rural and regional Australia. We are now the most advanced country in the world in the collection of that data at traffic speed. So when people see the big AWRB truck running down their highways, we're actually collecting a unique global data set on the performance of our networks. So when we partner with universities, and um, we've got a wonderful partnership with Monash on a smart pavements hub. So we're training 43 new PhD candidates in pavement engineering. It's understanding,
0: I think, how important clever thinking is about development because, to some degrees, government departments and that have have tended to outsource that recently. Are you doing much more work now directly with private industry?
1: You briefly mentioned um, before what the post-COVID world looked like, and it's been quite remarkable in 2021 as we've come coming out of a COVID world, there's been really significant change in the private and public sector engagement of our business, the National Transport Research Organisation, to do new work. We are really ramped up to the maximum capacity at the moment, working with the private sector to solve some unique problems, particularly in the rail sector. We are working like never before with our colleagues in state transport agencies to really grasp what the future is and develop assurance models for those agencies to assure them that the work that's been done on the network is not only being constructed properly, but will last the test of time and has the right asset management strategies in place.
0: Do we give enough credit to private industry too for having a long-term vision? I think of sustainability, that there are private companies now and and those with overseas uh, head offices that having uh, that are setting very strong requirements for sustainability have you seen in the private industry an enhancement a, a, a development of that particular type of thinking
1: most definitely it, it and it's coming through in partnership with government to change the standards and and the private sector is pushing government to say, well, if you if you set the standard, we want 25 or 30 or 40 percent recycled product in our road environment, we can deliver it for you.
0: I went to a function at Sydney local council last night, and there was much talk about bringing in sustainability to various organisations. And some large buildings in the city have reduced their carbon footprint, but they've also made money out of doing it. Is there Less of a just ideological driven here, but a more practical reality, both for the benefit of the community, but also the reality is it's good
1: for the business as well. Absolutely right. And we're now in a in a position where we can actually model it and define it. So we've completed a piece of work fairly recently, and within the last 12 months, that now allows us For innovative road solutions to actually value in a whole of life value, um, both the capital dollars up front and the long-term maintenance costs with a greenhouse gas emissions overlay. So for example, if you're using warm mix asphalt, which is asphalt produced at about 120, 130 degrees instead of 170, 180 degrees, and you incorporate recycled asphalt as part of that warm mix process, you can save thirty-six tonnes of carbon emission per lane kilometre of production. I mean, they're huge numbers. And it's cheaper to produce because it's less energy. It's cheaper to produce because you're using more recycled product in it. And it's better for the environment. So those offerings from the private sector to government are available today. And the government's now um, using the National Transport Research Organisation, our business, to write the standards to enable them to have the confidence to use these New and innovative products.
0: It seems to me that the notion of sustainability, which has often been seen as a left versus right political issue, and we and some have taken the attitude that we may have to begrudgingly accept the sustainability. Perhaps, though, there's much more joy in accepting that because, as you say, we're, it's costing less and so on. There's the, the, it's an abundance to embrace, not just a burden to have to endure.
1: All of that is absolutely true. And governments at state and Commonwealth level, and, and we work with both, are right across it. Now, the Federal Environment Minister and her assistant minister, Minister Evans in, in Queensland, we've had a lot to deal with in terms of allowing them to understand the journey and then for them to support the journey in our sector to do that.
0: The media coverage of budgets is usually about the quantity of the spend. So it's part of your role to try and make sure that there is a quality of the outcomes, that, that, that there's some allocation of money, not just to build some big projects which make headlines, but to do the analysis and research for understanding what the best solutions might be. Is that part of your talk about engaging with the, both the politicians and the public?
1: Now you've hit the nail on the head for our next our next journey. This part of this integrated mobility journey is we must audit. We must understand when we put $2.2 2 billion into new safe system outcomes in rural and regional Australia, it's not good enough to just go and um, – As you say, cut the ribbon on all of those new pieces of work. We must go back every year. We must monitor how many accidents and incidents have occurred on these new pieces of work. We must learn from the system changes and continually improve. If we say we want to do something better,
0: that doesn't condemn our past so much.
1: That's a maturing of, of the national conversation. And, you know, you play a very significant role in that through these podcasts. And, but the, but the, the live media, the daily media grind on TV does have to change its messaging around um, what's acceptable. Failure is not a bad thing. Mm. You only learn from failures. If everything you've got everything right all the time, you're being way too conservative. You're not pushing the boundaries.
0: i better draw it to a close, but uh, I'm sure that in the future we can flesh out some of these in even more detail uh, for your time now. I do appreciate it greatly.
1: Been lovely having a chat, and um, available anytime. I, I really enjoy our conversations, and and you know your your listeners. I do get feedback from them when they listen to the podcast um, and want to know more information. So you've got a great audience, uh, a really switched on audience, and it's through this communication that we will all learn together.
0: More power to that, Michael. Thanks again. I, I do appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Bye for now. And that's Michael Cal-Tabiana, is the CEO of the AWRB, formerly the Australian Road Research Board, but, as we've heard, is embracing the more holistic approach to transport, which is so fundamental to understanding what we need and what we do and how we then can develop systems that allow that to be most safe and efficient. You're listening to Overdrive.
2: The Audi Q2 SUV created quite a stir when it was first launched in 2017, and ever since we've been waiting for a performance version. Well, the SQ2 has arrived. Pricing starts at around $64,500 plus the usual costs, and it's packed with standard features and high-performance 2.0-litre TFSI engine. It's good for 0-100 of 4.9 seconds and slightly slower than an RSQ3, and about the same time as the SQ8. However, it's not only fast, it's extremely agile, comfortable, and with the Quattro drivetrain, the handling is superb. It is simply fun to drive. Some of the added features include 19-inch alloy wheels and performance tyres, matrix LED headlights, sports front seats in Nappa leather, 12.3-inch Audi virtual cockpit, and a 700-kilowatt Bang & Olufsen premium sound system. Audi SQ2 now rockets to the top of the list for small performance SUVs, with a distinctive style and outstanding performance at a reasonable price. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive.
0: Well, we come to the unusual stories to do with transport, yet they are ones that I think often hit at the very core of humanity and the way we have to live, but also the impact of our living And I refer, of course, to railways and how they would cope with their toilet disposal functions. Brian Smith is our expert in transport planning, but also things weird and wonderful. And he joins us on the line. G'day, Brian. Hi, David. What is India doing?
3: Well, David, do you ever remember travelling in trains uh, in your youth when, when the toilet just basically emptied onto the tracks beneath you? And there was usually a sign, right? Yeah. Please don't use the toilet when you stop at the station. And many a time, I've not been able to comply with that uh, for various reasons. Well, in um, in India, they actually still have these toilets, these um, direct drop toilets. Now, now they've got a, a, a rail network of about sixty four thousand kilometres, carries about thirty million people a day, two point eight tons of goods, and the result from these. Pitch- drop toilets onto the train track is that they're actually corroding the rail tracks with human faeces and that the the tracks are covered in human faeces. Now, at the moment...
0: Sorry, Brian. Brian, is, is that because there's a lot of curry? They eat a lot of curry? Does that have a more toxic effect? They employ people to manually pick up the
3: human waste from the railroad tracks. And in good news the Bhopal-based National Institute of Technical Teachers Training and Research, has come up with the idea for a garbage transport vehicle which would allow this to be mechanised. So the removal of what they term excreta from the tracks, currently done with brooms and metal plates, uh, sounds like a, a large sort of dustpan and broom sort of operation, It will be replaced by uh, these sort of uh, automated uh, or mechanized scavenging vehicles, which will drive along the track and hopefully automatically pick up the human waste. Night soil is another (laughs) term for it. They eventually, the government will be replacing these drop toilets with um, uh, proper toilets on the trains, but you know, it's going to take around five years and they've got something like 43,000 carriages.
0: Uh, to uh, to convert. It is this sort of technology that I think has raised our standard of living and uh, uh, and and the sorts of uh, removal of jobs that really sorry I think there's a, po- a pun there that was unintended. <laughs> uh, the, the removal of activities that while it may have employed some people, there's got to be a better way to do it. Well, David,
3: I, I read in The, the Fatal Shore, um, the famous book about Australia's uh, early days. Robert Hughes. Yes. Yeah, so so some of the people who were transported, uh, one of them, uh, their job was pure collector, P-U-R-E, pure, which was the term back then for dog faeces. Oh. And um, And so this person's job was to collect dog faeces, which were used in the tanning of leather um, and so that was possibly the the lowest job on the kind of London totem pole uh, at the time.
0: I stayed in a little town in the south of France for a week, and they desperately needed people to do that. <laughs> it was appalling. You really had to step very carefully on your way around there. But uh, that's another thing. The thing about the drop toilets that always uh, used to get me it was almost the, the notion of a draft. You know that um, just and, the, and and the sort of being so uh, directly linked to the outside world.
3: I oh, look. I remember using them as a child and being frightened of the idea of falling through and, and ending up on the railway track.
0: Well, it's a sandy Totsit from QI and other. Humorous type television programs. Remembers a little kid where they used to put, stuff a whole pile of uh, paper down the toilet, flush it, and run out the back to the back window of the train to see it, watch it flutter. Ah <laughs> 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 oh dear,
3: what an image to finish on, David. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for bringing this uh, particular transport story to our attention, Brian. (laughs) I I appreciate it greatly. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. And that's Brian Smith talking about uh, the wonders of transport on the rail system um, in the more practical and earthy manner that we've had to overcome in the past,
2: but India is rushing to do so at the moment. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi has just launched an updated version of its sports SUV, the SQ5. Powered by a 3 litre V6 turbo diesel engine, it delivers quite healthy performance, driving through the brilliant Quattro system and an 8 speed Tiptronic transmission. It's good for 0 to 100 kilometres an hour in 5.1 seconds and tops out at a governed 250 kilometres an hour. The major upgrades are focused on improved engine efficiency and the introduction of the latest MMO technology that was introduced in the Q5 range earlier this year. This features a 10.1-inch high-resolution MMI touchscreen display, wireless charging tray for smartphones and wireless Apple CarPlay connectivity. Alongside the impressive standard features, the options I would choose are front seat massage function and Quattro Sport differential. The key to the SQ5 is the balance between performance and everyday driving. It's luxurious, comfortable and provides a thoroughly engaging driving experience. Priced from just under $105,000, plus the usual costs and options, it's definitely worth a look.
0: And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Michael Caltabiano, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. More information and previous programs are available at drivenmedia.com.au or we podcast the program through iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.